We have been going through, we're in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, doing a week on each commandment, and it's our fourth week, and so the fourth commandment. Uh, And this is the first one that is a positive command. The other three so far have been negative commands, thou shalt not. And here we come to the first one that gives us a positive command, and it's a beautiful command if we can learn it. Let me read our passage for us, and then we'll pray. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, 12 through 15, our Old Testament reading. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, many of us here are committed. We're excited. We believe in what your word says. We're on top of the world. We've had a great week. Things are going well. Others of us here sit confused because we understand what your word says, and sometimes it doesn't seem like it's working out in our lives the way that we think it should. Others of us are questioning, could this be true? Could this be the answer that we're looking for? Could this be spirituality at its truest and best sense? Father, we all have different questions. We all come at this passage from different approaches and different perspectives. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to each of us here, that you would walk into each of our questions, even our skepticism, with your grace, with your mercy. Help us to wrestle with what's at the center of this text, text, the rescue, the gospel, Father, we pray that you would meet us, that you would revive our hearts, that you would give us new hearts, give us new energy to obey you, to follow you in all things. And particularly as we look at this verse about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, would we learn to honor it and learn to rest in it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head that didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Then I fumbled through my closet for my clothes and found my cleanest, dirty shirt. And I shaved my face and combed my hair and stumbled down the stairs to meet the day. On the Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing, Lord, that I was stoned, because there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. And there's nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sound on the sleeping city sidewalks, Sunday morning, coming down. That's, of course, the song that Johnny Cash made popular in the 70s, but it was actually written by Chris Christofferson. Now, maybe he's just having a bad day. Maybe he tied one on the night before and his head hurts and he can't be alone. He's just struggling to get up and get moving. Or maybe there's something deeper that's going on. There's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. 
psychologists in the last century diagnosed a particular pathology that they called Sunday neurosis. And it's a kind of depression which afflicts people particularly on Sunday. That they become lack, they come, become aware of their lack of contentment in the rest of life because they pause on Sunday long enough to realize it. They've been distracted by the rush of the week, the tasks, the to-dos. They've been distracted, diverted from really thinking about their soul, from really thinking about where contentment comes from. But on Sunday, they pause, they stop, they think, maybe even pray, and they begin to feel alone and powerless and vulnerable. The day of rest, the Sabbath, is a gift to humanity, but it can be a very anxious affair because we're pausing from many of our central meaning makers in our life lives. We're pausing from achievement, from accomplishment, from constructing our reputation. We're pausing from all of the ways that we control our worlds, that we tell ourselves that we are important and we're good. One of the deepest tests of your spirituality, wherever you're coming from this morning, whether you're a Christian or whether you're searching or whether you're committed to another worldview, one of the central tests is can you rest? Can you truly rest? Can you rest from your striving, from your working, from your achieving? Can you stop? And if you do stop, does it give you rest and solitude and peace or does it make you anxious? Does it make you possibly even depressed. We're going to look this morning at this Sabbath rest that is commanded in this passage and just from two perspectives, why you need it and how do you get it. Why you need Sabbath rest and how you get it. First of all, why do we need it? Well, scientists tell us that we need a certain quality of of rest, a certain quality of sleep, not just a certain quantity that there's a certain quality of rest that comes after you've been asleep for a number of hours. And you probably know what it's like to have gotten seven or eight hours of sleep, but you wake up still haggard. You wake up still tired. Something's bugging you. You've got a big presentation at work the next day. There's relational tension in one of your valued friendships. And though you slept seven or eight hours, you didn't really rest. There's a difference between sleep and rest. And spiritually, the same thing is true. Maybe you've created this rhythm of spirituality in your life. You've tried to do well in your work. You've tried to be a decent person. You try to obey the spiritual rules that you know to obey. Maybe you show up every Sunday morning at a house of worship. But your heart is never still. You're anxious. You're worried. You're fearful about the future. And Sunday doesn't seem to invest the other six days with any meaning, with any extra energy, with any real significance. Now, we read Hebrews 4 in our New Testament reading. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, when they entered the promised land with Joshua, the command is remember the Sabbath. This is a a recurring observance. This is something that has been embedded in Israel for many years. So it's not something new. 
It's something that they're to remember. They're to continue practicing. And here they are. They have one day of seven of pure rest, that they don't do anything but worship and spend time with their family. And they're going into the promised land, the land that God has given them. But there's still something missing. Strive to enter a different rest, that rest. One day in seven rhythm, this physical stopping pointed to something that was deeper, pointing to, pointed to some need at the center of their soul that wouldn't be met simply by observing, simply by going through the rhythms of Sabbath. There was a rest beneath the rest that was needed. Now, rest is a courtroom word. Rest means stopping, resting your case. It means you have made an argument. You have done the duty in order to gain a certain verdict. To order, in order to get a certain judgment, you're resting your case. It's a courtroom word. In Franz Kafka's The Trial, the main character, Joseph K., wakes up. He's 30 years old. I don't know if you've read this story. He wakes up on his birthday, and he's at a trial. He's on trial, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what he's accused of. He doesn't know what happened before to get there, but he's on trial. And early on, He's thinking about, well, the earth is, the world is a generally just place. It's an okay place to live. And I'm an okay person. I'm a decent person. And so he feels that although he's on trial, he's going to be okay and things are going to work out. But as he hears the case against him, he begins to think about himself. He begins to think about his past actions. Maybe he's not such a decent person. He examines himself and no longer is comforted by these platitudes about the world being okay and he being a decent person. These things no longer brought him rest. And then at the end of the story, he's at a quarry, and he looks up and he sees this person, this man, and he has this sense just for a moment that this man is going to do something just for him, that he's going to bring justice into Joseph K.'s life. And as he has that moment... As he has that thought, his warder, the person that's supposed to take care of him, stabs him in the heart, and Kafka says he dies like a dog. Now, it's a pretty grim view of humanity and of our world, but every one of us knows what it's like to live on trial. Everyone knows that sense that Joseph K. has, that I'm on trial, and I'm not even sure what, I, what it's for. I'm not even sure what other people out there are holding against me. And I certainly can't control it. We all know what it's like to be on trial in some way, in our workplace, in our homes, in the hallways of our schools, in our neighborhoods, even in our churches. We can feel like we are constantly on trial. We know that people are making judgments of us. We know that they're forming opinions of us. And we know that we can't control it, and it drives us crazy. Intellectually, we know that people are making judgments about us. They're perhaps even gossiping about us, and we can't control it. We know that. It's futile, but we try so hard. And we know we're doing this when we carry around someone's negative opinion, someone's negative comment, and we can't let go of it. It keeps going around and around and around in our hearts. We know that we're slave to other people's opinions when that's happening. And what's maybe worse is that we judge ourselves. Perhaps we're not happy with our true self, and that's why we hide it from others. Oh, we may say, well, this community isn't authentic, this community isn't open, but really, 
We are ashamed of what's at the center of who we are. We are ashamed of things that have happened in our past, of failures, of words that have been said to us, of things that our parents have said. We are ashamed, and we want to cover that shame, and we hide from other people. With these things hanging on us, pressing stop at the end of the week, just simply pausing, creating a different rhythm is not going to help because we can't really rest. Sunday morning is coming down. Now, the person that came up with this idea of Sunday neurosis was a Hungarian psychologist, psychoanalyst. His name was Sandor Ferenczi. And he noticed that in many of his clients that they would have a headache or a stomach ache or an onset of depression as the week started to close and begin again. And after ruling out all of the physiological possibilities that might be causing this, what he realized was that their sickness had to do with Sunday, with the Sabbath. A New York Times writer that is reflecting upon Ferenczi's work says this, On that weekly holiday, not only did drudgery give way to festivity, family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down stilling the inner murmur of self-reproach. The Sunday neurotic, rather than enjoying his respite, became distraught. He feared that impulses repressed only with great effort might be unleashed. He induced pain or mental anguish to preempt the feeling of being out of control. You see, the enforcement of stopping if we're stopping from the very things from which we derive meaning, will not bring rest, but will bring restlessness. Whether it's work achievement, friendships that we're cultivating, cultural experiences that we're seeking, whether it's hobbies and avocations that have become work because they're competitive, when we cease these, when we press pause on these things, when we put them out of reach for an entire day, it won't lead to refreshment, but it'll lead to anxiety, to agitation. The Sabbath, physical resting, is very important, more so probably now than ever. But what it's pointing to is not simply a rhythm. It's not simply taking a day off. It's not simply vacation. But it's a deeper rest that's beneath the rest. Now, if that's what we need, how do we get it? How do we get this Sabbath rest, this real rest, this rest of the soul? Well, in response to the trial, in response to the ways that we live in our world and we realize that we're on trial in many places and in many people's minds, how do we respond? Well, maybe we haven't really fully formulated it, but we have this kind of immediate response of fight or flight. Some of us flee from religion. We say, well, If I'm following the rules of everyone else and religion is just a bunch of rules, then why would I want to become a religious person? Why would I become a Christian? Because it's just more rules to follow. And so we run away from that. We become independent, self-sufficient. We deal with the trial that way. Others of us run towards religion. Tell me what to do. Give me a list. Hopefully it's not too long. And then when I have problems at work, When I can't rest, when I think people are critical of me, I can point to that list and say, yeah, but look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. And I can feel better. I can feel better about myself. But both of these ways of fleeing, the fight or flight, 
are both the same. What we're doing is that we are trying to control our world, either through irreligion and running away and self-sufficiency, or we're trying to be self-sufficient and control our world through religion itself. Both are us trying to be our own Lord and Savior and not responding to the rescue, to the liberation that is promised in Deuteronomy. The Sabbath is meant to be a liberation. It's meant to be salvation. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your maidservant or manservant, your ox and donkey and so forth. Why? Why give rest to yourself and to those people? Why? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Why rest? Why take a Sabbath? Why come and assemble at public worship? Because the Lord rescued you out of Egypt. The Lord, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, rescued his people out of slavery. It's not to earn rest. We don't abide by the Sabbath out of duty so that we can earn God's favor, we can earn his rescue, but because he's given it already. You respond in worship. You respond in resting in your soul because God has provided the rescue for you. How do you begin to find rest in the midst of this ongoing trial, both internally and externally? Many of us have, I'm sure, either been a part of or seen the moment of silence, either out of a a sporting event or a community event, some tragedy is happening, and we're going to recognize it with a moment of reflection. What are we doing? We're pausing. We're silencing and drowning out all of the distractions to reflect upon this person or this person's life. We're honoring them with our memory. We're remembering the way that they lived in the world and giving them worth in their life. The Sabbath is a moment of silence. It's a pausing to remember, a pausing to remember God's nature as the rescuing, redeeming God. It's pausing to remember how God reached into Egypt and pulled his people out of slavery. It's pausing to reflect upon his compassionate, initiating love. And it's allowing him to reach into your inner restlessness and give you true rest. It's opening up all of the ways that we try to control our world and saying, God, I have tried to control my world by being a good person. I've tried to control my world by being involved with the right program, the right cause. I've been trying to control my world by living apart from you and doing it on my own. Would you come in and relinquish me from that slavery? Would you liberate me from my self-salvation? It's inviting him in to still that inner murmur of self-reproach, to liberate you and I from that machinery that's ongoing, that self-censorship, that trial that we're putting ourselves on, that trial that we're putting others on, and the trial that they put us on. In instituting the Sabbath, God is saying, did you see what I did? Did you see the exodus? Did you see the way that I rescued my people? Remember that. That's the kind of God I am. In instituting the Sabbath, he is saying, that is the kind of power, that's the kind of liberation, that's the kind of salvation that I now offer to you. Would you take hold of it 
And would you take hold of it not once, but take hold of it each and every week as you pause and deliberately focus upon that rescue, upon that salvation? Would you remember with me my character and my work? The Sabbath is one day to remember the past goodness of God, but to bring it into present reality, to contextualize it, to say, how does that matter to me now? How could God's promise of, of liberation, and not only his promise, but his action, how can that matter to me in my workplace, in my home, in my relationships, in all the ways that I'm on trial and feel on trial? How can that matter today? That's what Sunday is for. But also Hebrews 4, there's a coming rest, that the exodus is not the only liberation. It's a backdrop. It's a precursor to an even greater rescue that God wants to provide, that he wants to rescue you from the work beneath the work, not just out of physical slavery that it may be to your job, but he wants to rescue you out of all the ways that you've enslaved yourself spiritually. Many of you have probably seen the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. It won the Academy Award. And there are two men in this movie that serve as sort of counterpoints. One is Harold Abrahams, and he serves as sort of the the secular man. He's the gifted runner. He's at the top of his field in the vocation that he's chosen to, to do his work. He is excellent. He's one of the best in the world. But he says to his friend Aubrey, Aubrey, you're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That is your secret, contentment. I am 24, and I've never known it. I've never known contentment. I'm ever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Some of us are still chasing in this room. Some of us have these ideas, these dreams, these accomplishments that if only we can get there, then we'll be content and we can stop chasing. Others of us have been there. We've done that. We've gotten the degree, we've gotten the diploma on the wall, we've gotten the acclaim, and we found it empty. We found it wanting. We're still Harold Abraham, still chasing. We don't even know what we're chasing, but we have this inner murmur, this sense of restlessness, this sense of lacking contentment and true fulfillment. Eric Liddell is the other runner, the other main character, and he's having a discussion with his sister, and this is the most famous quote from the movie. His sister's wondering, why are you still running, Eric? You are called to be a missionary to China. And he says, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Abraham's can't not work. He's always striving. He can't quit the work underneath the work. Even when he achieves, when he wins, When he gets the gold and silver medal in the Olympics, it doesn't get him any closer to the contentment that he really, really wants. Liddell, on the other hand, when he discovers that the 100-meter race in the Paris Olympics of 24 is going to be run on the Sabbath, he says, no, I'm not going to run it. It's his best race. It's the one that his country is betting on him winning the gold medal. And he says, no, I won't sully the Sabbath by running, by doing my vocation on that particular day. He's liberated from the work underneath the work. He doesn't need to run in order to feel important. He doesn't need to succeed in his job in order to say, I'm a good person. He's liberated. His running 
doesn't define him. A day off may slow our fatigue. It may take the edge off an otherwise harried existence. But the prescription is not simply pausing. It's not having a better work-life balance. It's being liberated from that chasing. It's being set free from that pursuing. It's being set free from the work underneath the work that says no matter how much you achieve, no matter how good a job you do, you will never have enough. It's being liberated from that idea once and for all. And then when you come and rest physically, you can rest spiritually as well. The Sabbath is a memorial to the liberation from slavery to Egypt. But as I said, it's pointing forward to something deeper, something more important. In the gospel reading that we read earlier, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Everything symbolized in that release from Egypt, everything that was typified there, I am. I am the Lord of rest itself. I will set you free from this machinery of pride, from always measuring yourself by others. I will give you my name, my affection, my love, my status, my identity. What do other people's opinions matter when you have that? I will give you everything you will never need to chase again. I will give you a purpose that is greater than you, that outstrips all of your qualifications and all of your skills, and yet you will find in it release, you will find in it joy as you follow me. The same New York Times article reflecting on the work of these psychiatrists that came up with the idea of Sunday neurosis And this whole idea of Sabbath-keeping says it takes effort. Paradoxically, work and sacrifice reflects a paradoxical insight. Only a Sabbath that you have to work for will appear worth keeping. Just as in psychoanalysis, a patient will value only those sessions for which they pay, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. But you cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. As the cat in the hat says, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so excruciatingly intentional, requiring extensive advanced preparation. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting The ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit. So practically, how do we begin that habit? How do we begin to put an end, practically speaking, to that ceaseless round of striving? Let me leave you just with three very practical things from this text. Observe, keep it holy, and remember. Observe, keep it holy, and remember. That word observe, it means to guard. It means to keep, to protect it from outside forces and interruptions. We need to think about what is the threshold for which we will give up worship on a Sunday morning? What's the threshold of other events and other things in our lives that can move through that filter and take the place of being gathered together. The Bible has always held that one of the central pieces of Sabbath and then the Lord's Day is public gathered worship. 
What's your threshold? It may be different for many of us in this room, but I just encourage you, think about it. Give consideration to the vacation, the trip. These things are all great. They're all, it's great to go to the beach. Maybe we should think about, well, maybe I'll schedule it so that I'll be back for Sabbath, for, for the Lord's Day. Observe, guard, keep. Staying in bed, reading the newspaper, getting that third cup of coffee is really nice. It really is. Oftentimes, that's what I want to do on Sunday. It's nice, but it's not what you need. It's a break, but it's not real rest. It's like taking a nap and you get relaxed for a moment, but it's not true sleep. It's not REM sleep. It's just napping. Observe. And then keep it holy. This means sanctified or set apart. Keep it different. It doesn't mean that everything that you do on Sunday has to be religious in function. It just means it has to be different from what you do the rest of the week. If you check email and Facebook compulsively, then on Sunday, don't. <laughs> Pull the plug. Disengage. It's not just that, it's not that it's the, that's your vocation. It's that that's what you do every other day of the week. On Sunday, maybe pull the plug and don't do it one day. If you exercise compulsively, then maybe stop on Sunday. Parents of small children, I know that this is sounding like pie in the sky. You don't know. Well, I do. And even this morning, as every Sunday is, it's very chaotic getting kids into the car and getting them dressed and so forth. And I know that, that parents are in a service industry, and your clients don't stop needing things on Sunday. And so taking a break, taking a rest, especially if you're the primary caregiver in your home, can seem like very difficult because you have to work doing the thing on Sunday that you do the other six days of the week. Well, if you're the spouse that's the primary breadwinner rather than the caregiver, maybe you should volunteer to take the kids for an afternoon. Give your spouse a break so that they can rest. Part of the institution of the Sabbath, as you read, is to liberate, to give freedom to those who are weak, to those who are oppressed, to those that you have power over, that you have power to give liberation to. So maybe that's your way of serving. It doesn't look like what you need. You may come home seeming a little bit tired than when you left because you've been with the kids all day. But it deep, in a deeper way, you're serving, you're doing what the Sabbath was intended to do. Observe, keep it holy, and then remember. Remember, you were slaves and you've been set free. What we're doing as we come to worship, as we come to this table, is that we're recounting the gospel again. We're telling the gospel to each other through reading scripture, through singing, through prayers, through eating together. We're saying that I was rescued not by my own effort, not because I was a good person, not because I was smarter than everyone else and figured it out. It's that God reached into my heart before I ever did anything worthwhile and, in fact, sinned against him greatly. And he reached in and rescued me, rescued me from all of the ways that I've turned away from him. You need rescue from the self-sufficiency of irreligion or religion or both. You need liberation. And Jesus stands waiting to give it. He stands saying, not simply, I command you, you better stop one day out of seven. You're going to do it. Instead, he says, I rescue you. I liberate you. I set you free. Now, remember that. Observe what I've done again each and every week so that you can live in the other six days out of that first day.
you notice we sung this great hymn, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I lay in dust, in dust, life, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Friends, rest today. Rest your soul. Rest in Jesus. He is here to set you free. Would you take hold of him now? Let's pray together. Father, we are so, so grateful that you tell us, that you show us, that you remind us of the availability of rescue, that you offer to liberate us from the things that haunt us, the things from our past, the things from our present, the things that worry us about our future, that you offer your own son to liberate us. Lord, let us take hold of him. Lord, if we are here still questioning, I pray that we would take one step closer to Jesus as he is taking steps towards us. And Father, if we have been Christians for many years, I pray that you would remind us again of your tender, gentle, everlasting mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.